are entering the Freedom Hut. Huge GDP number today. Looks like the economy under Trump is doing just great. Joe Biden's talking about a fight for the soul of America, but what the heck is he really talking about? Does he even know? And George Papadopoulos, the man at the center of the Russia collusion delusion, he's going to spend a good chunk of time with us today to tell us what really happened as a target of the deep state. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, it's a blowout number. Um, You know, I'll just say Trump policies to rebuild the economy. Lower taxes, regulations, opening energy, trade reform. Look, this stuff is working. The first quarter is supposed to be the worst quarter of the year. So it comes in at 3.2 percent. Tells me, among other things, that the prosperity cycle we have entered into is continuing. It's strong. It's got legs and it's got momentum. And frankly, it's going to go on for quite some time. This is the new Trump economy. Some people don't like that or just, uh, they don't agree with that. I respect the differences, but I'll tell you, I think it I seems heard to be you. working. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Blowout number here on a Friday. GDP growth 3.2% the first quarter. Just a reminder, you know, I, I like to spend some time on the show to make the case to all of you that President Trump is, in fact, doing a very good job overall as president. Not perfect. Some stuff I would want it differently, but certainly not what the left is telling you. It's a fight for the soul of the nation. What are we going to do and how are we ever going to live for four more years of Trump? I, I do worry about what the psychological damage will be to the left if Trump does win re-election. And I think right now he is in a very strong position. I know a lot can change between now and then. I do worry about a cyclical recession. I'm going to keep saying it because I'm hoping it won't come true. And if I say it, it won't happen. But Trump as commander-in-chief, Trump as a steward of the American economy and with the ideas and the policies that he's pushing, things are actually going pretty well. There is a lot of there is a lot of sense of optimism and growth. And meanwhile, the left is running around saying all kinds of of just crazy stuff. Green New Deal, Medicare for all. Increasingly embracing at least socialist tone, if not socialist intent. And that's why I like to hear from a man, Larry Kudlow. He's just he's great, isn't he? Kudlow really is a. Very effective communicator, very, very charming guy and smart, understands the economy really well. Here's here's what he says about this idea of the Democrat left. And can they really win pushing all this socialist nonsense? Play clip eight. I mean, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party can't win. They cannot win. Nope. Nobody wants to uh, have universal health care, cut GDP by 15 percent. Uh the Green New Deal, which would destroy. I mean, nobody that that socialist message is a sure loser. I hope he's right. I really do. I think he is right. But we have a long time and the media, man, that think think about how much ferocity they direct at Trump on a regular basis. I mean, think about their willingness to try to come up with a lot of different ways to just Make Trump make a negative news cycle for Trump. I mean, honest, 
analyses of media coverage of this president usually put negative coverage at around 90%. So most of the major media outlets, when they run a story on Trump, nine out of 10 times, it's just obviously negative. Now they're going to have their second opportunity in the post-Russia collusion delusion situation of the Mueller report already being out. And after the Billy Bush tape and after the campaign finance, porn star payoffs, I mean, they've, they've thrown all this stuff at Trump and they just can't beat him. They just can't figure out how to do it yet. So there's going to be a particular desperation. You can smell it. You can feel it coming from the left in order to stop this president from getting four more years. And I don't know, and I really mean this, I don't know if they will be able to psychologically handle four more years of Trump. He's already broken them, so what's he going to do, break them again? Can they be rebroken? Is there going to be another night like that night when Trump defeated Hillary, when there are all these people gathered together for their big coronation party of whoever the Democrat is supposed to be. We don't really know yet. Right now, people say Biden. I don't think that's going to last, but we'll talk more about where I am on Biden. Can Democrats handle four more years of Trump? What Will some of them actually start to flee to Canada or who knows where? I don't know if anyone really has the answer because the way that they have responded to this president so far is just, it does feel like and look like a form of psychosis. And Biden launching his campaign the way he did, talking about Charlottesville right away, and, and this, this pretense that we're going to have a return to normalcy when I don't even know what normalcy is supposed to be. The Obama years were normalcy? Uh, the Obama administration's policies, the bowing to dictators, the giving pallets of cash for hostages, the Iranians, after completely abandoning some of the fundamental precepts of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East because you didn't want to upset the Iranian mullahs. That, that's return to normalcy? You know, you didn't build that, demonizing job creators, uh, those who build wealth for themselves and others through the fruits of their labor, that that's what we want to go back to? It doesn't seem like something that anybody should be particularly excited about. What will Biden's policies be? I don't even know if Biden knows what his policies in the economy are supposed to be. You know, he's one of these guys who has been in living off the off of the, the public's checkbook for a very long time, I think 30 or 40 years now. He's never really had a private sector job. In that sense, he represents much of what was rejected in the last election, that the politics of the permanent political class. And Biden's already, I mean, don't even get me started on how, you know, he's was essentially an unlicensed and unwanted massage therapist for anybody within arm's reach for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, that's right. What are his economic policies going to be? Kudlow brought up what he thinks Biden, well, he thinks Biden doesn't even know what Biden's going to do. Play nine. What I don't know is whether Joe Biden will run on the kinds of pro-growth economic policies that Donald Trump has put in place and whether Vice President Biden will work to keep the prosperity cycle going. Joe Biden's a blue collar guy. I get that. But here's the point. Under President Trump, blue-collar workers are booming. Blue-collar employment is booming, the best since I was here last in the 1980s. Wages are booming. Will Mr. Biden promote growth policies, or will he promote, you know, big centralized government collectivist policies okay. like the rest of his party? Right. We'll have to wait and see. A strong economy 
is usually a big winner come election time. That's all I'll say. I mean, what are the policies that Biden's going to push? Less prosperity? Higher taxes, we know, because that's Democrats love to do that. What do they really think is going to be a compelling pitch for Joe Biden on the economy? All this class warfare stuff appeals to the left wing base, but people that are just trying to do the right thing, pay their bills, pay their mortgage, pay their rent. They don't they don't just want to hear about the millionaires and the billionaires. They want to hear about how they're going to have opportunity and the government's going to take its boot off their neck and its hand out of their pocket. Is Biden going to provide that? Uh, Biden is kind of a cipher and no one really knows what he thinks about a lot of this stuff because he's not somebody who has a particular philosophical position on anything. It's just what does it do for Biden at any given time? Old school politics for an old school dude. I don't think it's going to be enough. In case Hillary Clinton loses, if uh, she loses, we've got an insurance policy. Well, that was the insurance policy. Now she lost. And now they're trying to infiltrate the administration to uh, really it's a coup. I think it's far bigger than Watergate. I think it's possibly the biggest scandal in political history in this country. Let's see how high it goes up, because it's inconceivable when it goes to Clapper, Brennan, Comey, these people. I would imagine that some other people maybe a little bit higher up also knew about it and maybe a lot higher up. We know who he's talking about. The president there is starting to prepare the American people for the truth that I believe is going to come out very soon that uh, President Barack Obama at the time knew a whole lot about what was going on and did nothing to stop it. I think what we will see is that President Barack Obama, well, I'll get more into this later on the show, but I just... This uh, this idea that it was a coup, that this was something that we need to understand fully to to prevent in the future, uh, that is, we have to stay on this because the left is absolutely not going to want to get to the truth because the truth is that they tried to cheat in the election. They, they always they claim that Trump was the cheater. The reality is the left was the cheat was the cheater. The progressive left were the ones who were uh, pushing this whole story and engaging in the deceptions, perhaps before the FISA court. I think very likely, almost certainly that occurred. Um, I think that the progressive left has so much to be ashamed of, but they're not ashamed of anything because I don't think they're really capable of shame. That's not something that's really in their vocabulary. Um, and that's why when the president uses this language, when he says it's a coup and it's far bigger than Watergate, good, good. That is what we, that is how we should talk about this. We're going to have a whole conversation later on in the show about the kind of words the left wants us to use now and the ways that they try to control the language. But I mean, I'm just here to tell you that, you know, we have used their verbiage. You know, they insisted that we say collusion for two years. And then when we said no collusion, they said, well, collusion's not really a thing. I mean, they'll just change the rules as they go along. They'll change the rules. Um, and now the, the great hope of the Democrat left is, and I think that there, might, there may be a great irony here that the effort to take down Trump may help ensure his reelection. But the Democrat left believes that this was uh, that, that rather that Joe Biden is somebody who can make can make it all happen and he can defeat Trump. He's the one. And this is, you know, Trump talking about his soon to be 
perhaps number one opponent on the Democrat side. Play clip two. When you look at Joe, I've, I've known Joe over the years. He's not the brightest light bulb in the group. He talked about uh, the way the world is today. Well, I'll tell you, the way the world is today is we have a strong military. We have choice for our veterans. We have uh, the biggest tax cut in the history of our country. We are a country respected again. The country, as much as the left wants to believe it's going to hell in a handbasket, the country is doing well. We do not have uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement popping up in city after city, you know, deciding they're going to set up these Marxist encampments and demand changes to policy and send Antifa running around to break things and threaten people and act all crazy. We don't have the Black Lives Matter movement marching around the city saying that Cops are racist who are murdering uh, black young black men for for sport for effectively for entertainment or out of out of some deep seated racism. This is what was being said under the years of the Obama administration. I, I was at the rallies. I actually remember debating Van Jones on this, and, and he tried to say that, "Oh, that's not what said." I said, "I have photos of of the placards. I have video of the chants. I know exactly what was being said at Black Lives Matter rallies. You know, racist cops." murdering racist pigs, terrible stuff, terrible stuff. That's all. That's gone away, at least for now, under the Trump administration. In what way was the country unified under the Barack Obama years? This is where when Biden does this whole, oh, the the, the soul of, of America, where was this, this bringing together? Yeah, there was a moment there in the early stages of the Barack Obama presidency where you had this historic rise of a, of a president, first African-American president. You know, there was, I, I'm not going to deny reality. There was a moment there where I think you had a particularly high level of excitement and enthusiasm for a new president. But then Obama started making decisions as president, started doing things, started pushing policies and ideas. And that did not bring the country together. Obamacare, for example, was a, a as partisan a, an exercise as you could possibly have from the legislative branch. Obamacare was not about bringing people together or unifying them. It was about making the Republicans wallow and suffer in silence. Remember, elections have consequences. It was, we won, you lose, take it. That's what the Democrat attitude was. And I think Trump is absolutely right when he points this out and and that this soul of America nonsense from Joe Biden is just pathetic. Play four. So when Biden makes the statement talking about the soul, I mean, the soul, take a look at the Obama. You know, I heard somebody say before that there was such dissension and division. People forget there was tremendous division during the Obama administration. Tremendous division. We actually have great spirit right now. We do have good spirit right now. We also have good jobs numbers, good uh, stock market, good employment numbers. You know, everything is is trending in the right direction. Um, Everything except perhaps the border. I know, you know, I'm not going to go a whole show without bringing up where we are on the border. Um, I'm very troubled by this. Border Patrol Chief Brian Hastings, who I've interviewed numerous times, uh, had this bombshell to drop. And this is numbers. You know, we can, they can uh, tell us to ignore numbers. The Democrats can say this doesn't really matter. Numbers do matter. Play clip six. As of yesterday, 440,000 apprehensions along the southwest border. We need a change in in the, the current outdated laws that we're dealing with for this current demographic in this crisis that we have. 
440,000 apprehensions along the southwest border. No, no end to this in sight. The courts are blocking Trump. The Democrats are complicit in the massive illegal invasion in this country. They're, they're not willing to take this on. They don't want it to change. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here to tell you everything's all just fantastic in Trump's America. But I do think it's better than what we had going on in Obama's America. I think that there's very clear case to be made for that. And really what upsets the liberals the most is just Trump and his tweets. I keep asking, what's the terrible thing that Trump has done? What, what has made people's lives markedly worse in this country? And I get nothing. I get, oh, his tweets are mean. He says mean things to Jim Acosta. Really? That, that's now the barometer for whether the, the president is literally worse than Hitler, as they always say. I don't think so, my friends. We need to talk a bit more about the uh, revelations regarding the deep state. I know these struck page text messages now have come out and people are looking at those again. And there's the uh, the suggestion that struck a senior FBI agent may have uh, wanted to establish contacts in the administration during the transition uh, in order to essentially set people up, I think, is what we believe was going to happen, just like they did to. General Flynn, right? They, they were trying to take people down. And it was partisan, and it was all done in bad faith. Uh, I want to talk to you about Maria Butina coming up here, because she just got sentenced today, officially in federal court. I might have a slightly different take on that than a lot of other folks. And then in the second hour today on the show, we got George Papadopoulos, who's going to join us. And I'm going to let him really tell you his story. Because remember, he was central. He was the New York Times, Washington Post. They said Papadopoulos was the reason the FBI got this whole collusion investigation started. That is crap. And we will get into why and hear it from him. She had nothing to do with the Mueller investigation. Um, the Mueller team was aware of Maria. They were aware of this case. They interviewed her as part of her cooperation. And obviously she didn't appear anywhere in the Mueller report. Uh, I found it curious that, that that was mentioned, that what she did was during the time uh, of Russian election interference as alleged by the judge, when in fact, had she been involved in any of that, I would imagine, uh, Special Counsel Mueller uh, would have mentioned it somewhere in his 400 pages if she had anything to do with it, but he did not. Maria Butina. Remember that name? Maria Butina was the uh, young Russian woman, red hair. If you kind of remember, you can visualize because she was in the papers a lot for a few days. And she led to this, this frenzy of uh, speculation in, in the press about how there was a Russia NRA... Uh, collusion axis you know there there was this this massive plot to run russian assets through the nra and and then you know use that to influence our election or something all this stuff and it got even worse there was a suggestion based on what and now is recognized as a joke that she wrote to an american you know acquaintance that she was trading sex for access i mean they they called her essentially a a prostitute and a spy. And that was completely unfair. I mean, they, they smeared this woman. The press smeared her. The prosecutors initially smeared her. And now she's she's been sentenced today to 18 months, with nine of them counted towards uh, time already served, 18 months for being an unregistered foreign agent of Russia. Now, let me say this. The Register the registration of a foreign agent um, is an area of the law where you usually would not see this kind of 
very aggressive prosecution. I believe she was held in solitary for all too. Just I, have to, I might have to check on that, but that that's a hallmark of the Mueller probe and all the people involved here. Now Maria Butina was not actually a part of the. I mean, she was not a, a Mueller specific target. They spun that off to I think the Eastern District of New York. I mean, Eastern District of uh, Virginia. But there was all this stuff about how she was, you know, working through the NRA and the collusion and this and that and the other thing. And when push comes to shove. Maria Butina was essentially working on, and she was, according to the you know indictment and her guilty plea, doing this at the behest of the Russian government, but she was supposed to make friends in America and then have back channels for communication to try to improve U.S.-Russian relations. Now, could that be, I'm not naive, could that be an opening for, you know, an easy opening to, to commit espionage down the line? Sure, of course. Could that have been her intent all along? Yeah, maybe. Did she, Maria Butina, commit any act of or try or conspire to commit any act of espionage? To get her hands on classified information? To work to thwart the legitimate either processes of the government or to in some way involve herself in the election? No. None of that happened. None of that happened. She was effectively doing what we in D.C. call networking. She was making friends and trying to create relationships of influence. If she were not, and this is where I'm going to this, and I know that some people may disagree with me on that's fine. I don't care. I mean, people are entitled to their opinion, whatever. If she were not a Russian, and if we were not living through the Russia hysteria witch hunt situation, I don't believe that she would have faced any criminal charges whatsoever. If Maria Butina were from France, do you think that she would have faced charges for conspiracy to act as a foreign agent without registering in this country? And that they would they would want prison time? They got 18 months. That's a real prison sentence for her. Of course not. And this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so pleased that we're going to have uh, George Papadopoulos joining us later on in the program because... You know, the media wants to just just drive past all this wreckage that they have created. You know, they they want to find some way to just move on to the next conspiracy that undermines Trump. And that's bad for the administration. I mean, that really is their goal. And I refuse to allow them to do that because they did real damage here. They hurt people. And the environment of near psychosis they created, where people are so concerned about Russia and so concerned about, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the Mueller probe, the Mueller investigation, um, that then led to overreach of all kinds, to people's reputations being destroyed, to uh, these very aggressive raids against individuals, whether it's Papadopoulos or Stone or, you know, Manafort and all these different people who are at worst guilty of essentially white collar and process crimes. But the hysteria had spread throughout the federal government and, and it should really put us all on edge. Uh, it should really make us all feel very uncomfortable that all it took for some of the most powerful people in the national security bureau bureaucracy to become deep state left-wing activists was this conspiracy theory that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. That's all it took. And then they abandoned so many of their professional and ethical obligations, and they decided that, sure enough, they would not 
give any benefit of the doubt to the people that they were investigating. It was just going to be a headhunting expedition. They were going to get scalps. They're going to get people. I guess that's then a scalp hunting expedition. Same idea. Uh, they were going to make people pay for this. Did it matter to them? Did it matter to Mueller all along the way that the fundamental premise of this investigation was false? That the entire initial purpose of the investigation uh, was based on stories that were not true, uh, based on a reality that had not occurred? They, they, they just don't care. They just don't care. This was payback, my friends. It was payback all along. And they didn't get everything they wanted, but they they did score some points along the way. And they're not done yet. So we need to get ready for battle here uh, because these people should not benefit from what they did. And they certainly shouldn't get their person in the White House next. And at that moment, I knew the threat to this nation was unlike any I had ever seen in my lifetime. I wrote at the time that we're in the battle for the soul of this nation. Well, that's even more true today. I was talking about people that went because they felt very strongly about the monument to Robert E. Lee, a great general. Whether you like it or not, he was one of the great generals. People were there protesting the taking down of the monument of Robert E. Lee. Everybody knows that. President Trump does not accept the left's narrative of events where he is a a supporter of neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Of course, the left is not willing to move past this, they will miscategorize and misrepresent what he says. It is really the core of their Trump is evil. That is that is what this gives them license to say in their minds. That's why they won't stop. They won't allow this to be an honest discussion because I, I think that Trump didn't handle this as well as he could have. I think that what he said wasn't uh, under the circumstances what I would have advised or would have wanted him to say but he didn't say that this was, you know, the, the white nationalists are good and that neo-Nazis are fine people. That's just a lie. And people are lying about what he said and very intentionally. But I thought it was so interesting today because this debate broke out, at least on social media, about whether it is now racist to say that Robert E. Lee is a great general. You, you can't say Robert E. Lee is a great general. Now, when you talk about great, you can have a whole discussion about, you know, Alexander the Great. Conquered a lot of the known world at the time. Amazing military feats, but was not a guy that I think if you put him in the current context, uh, in terms of the amount of people that he killed along the way, that you would necessarily think was a great guy. Um, And then you have Genghis Khan, for example. If you say Genghis Khan was a a great military mind, a great war leader. Does that mean that you're okay with the genocide that the Mongols engaged in on a pretty regular basis? I mean, the Mongols would go in, and if you haven't ever heard it, I would recommend Dan Carlin's hardcore history on this one. The Mongols would go in, and they would kill an entire city if the city resisted. Everybody. Everything. Men, women, children. Everyone dies. Whole cities. No no one's saying that Genghis Khan murdering every man, woman, and child in a city uh, is, is ethical or good, but if you're talking about military capability, the expansion of state authority under arms. And yeah, then guess what? It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive what Genghis Khan pulled off. And in so many ways, Genghis Khan was one of the great military leaders of all time. But that doesn't mean that he's a good guy or everything he does is okay. 
And the case of Robert E. Leeds, obviously an even more nuanced discussion with was he fighting for Virginia? Was he actually fighting for slavery? People argue about this stuff all the time. I know a lot of people in the South right now are yelling as they hear this. He was not pro-slavery. I know this. I've read biographies of Lee, but he fought for the Confederacy. And there is now a very active effort to make everyone who took up arms for the Confederacy uh, to be akin to Nazis. That's really what the that's what the left and the Democrat Party today. Remember, the Democrat Party of the of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan. That's that's all Democrat Party stuff. But now the Democrat Party are very uh, brave warriors for truth and justice on this issue, you know, after the fact. And they really want to believe that anybody that had anything to do with uh, the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy it was it was morally equivalent to a Nazi. And I, I think that's, you know, that is uh, that is unfair. Um, that is unfair. Although these these conversations in, in history, uh, they do come up in other contexts, too. And it's interesting to see how people get very, uh, very tense, very uncomfortable when you point out things like, OK, it's, it's one thing to admit a member of the Nazi party. It's another it's another thing to be a member of, let's say, the SS. Um, but is every Wehrmacht uh, conscript that fought for the Germans in the Second World War, are they all the equivalent of the guys running the death camps? I mean, I think that that's, they fought for the wrong side. They fought for an evil side. Is every person who fights for the wrong cause to be held accountable for everything in that cause? I mean, what if you are facing the ruination or destruction of you and your, and your family, unless you're willing to serve? What if you're fighting for nationalist causes, meaning that love of the nation, not national socialism, you know, is that a, see, people, you can't even have this discussion. If you say that there were great, not meaning great men, but there are great generals who fought for the Confederacy, that is a military judgment. But today I saw, because Trump said that, or tweeted that Robert E. Lee was a great general, uh, this caused all kinds of stir. You know, if I were to study the tactics of Rommel, who was very well respected as a tactician. No one's saying that, you know, he was okay that he fought for the Nazis. But if you study the tactics of Rommel and say that he was a, a great tactician, does that mean that you are advocating for Nazi? Of course not. But it's very hard to have adult conversations these days when there are so many uh, leftists who are just looking for a way to bash the opposition and everyone involved uh, with it in their political opponents as just racist. That's they love to go with racist and now white nationalist, alt right. You know there are areas where they could criticize Trump and it would be at least a, a real exchange about something meaningful. But what they'd rather do is just debase, defame, and smear, and really go after the person and really suggest that he's just a an evil human being. It's not enough to say they don't like his policies. And this is common among Democrats all over the place. It's not that you and I are disagree with them, say, on climate change, because, you know, there was a map that was floating around the Internet yesterday and all over social media, at least. And it showed what is going to happen to Los Angeles if we don't stop climate change. And my friend David Harsanyi pointed out that uh, what's going to happen is that if people believe this, you would think that they would be willing to sell their beachfront Malibu mansions at a considerable discount, but they're not, and they won't. Why is that? If they really think that the Los Angeles shore is going to be underwater in 10 years. You don't want to be locked into a, you know, a $10 million home that's not going to be around in 10 years. That's not a good idea. 
So, but it's not that we're wrong on that. It's that we're evil. We're bad. We're bad people. That is what the left believes. And they also believe a lot of other things that are not true. Here's Joe Biden, who was on The View today. Joe seems to have a very uh, close relationship with Meghan McCain, which just I'm just noting that that's what I've picked up on. Uh, but Joe said this about the Obama administration that he served in Play 13. I'm very, I'm incredibly proud to have served with him. And the thing I'm proudest of is we coincidentally, we're each in a different part of the country uh, and we were each talking to groups of people that were being televised. And at the same day, purely coincidentally, we had asked the question, what are you proudest of in your administration? And know what I said? It turns out he said the same thing and probably a little more what? clearly than I did. <laughs> that not one single whisper of scandal. Not one. Not mm -hmm. one yeah. single whisper. That's Barack Obama. That's why it's because of Barack. I know. He's amazing. He's amazing. I know. He's the best. He's the smartest, the most handsome, the best dresser. He's amazing. Do you remember the tan suit he wore? He was so handsome in it. Remember Operation Fast and Furious? Remember Benghazi? Remember the IRS targeting conservatives in an election year? None of that is none of that is worthy of scandal. Huh. Interesting. Here's a little preview though of I think where this conversation will go pretty soon. You know what the real scandal with the Obama administration is going to end up being? The complicity of Obama's top national security officials in the Spygate collusion conspiracy theory. And I do believe that not only will we find out that this was essentially created almost out of out of just fabricated out of thin air with the dossier, um, but that beyond that, I think Obama knew a lot more about this than anybody wants to admit. I think Obama let this play out. And therefore, when we know the full scope of the deep state spying and the efforts to have a soft coup against the president, there will be. And the media will never admit this because they, they still think that there was collusion. I mean, they're crazy. Uh, but the media, you can't worry about them. They'll never come to an honest conclusion. The information will be out there and we will know that Obama knew enough that he should have stopped this. And he didn't. And he didn't because he didn't want to. And he didn't want to because this was the ultimate backdoor way to stop Trump. And we all know it. Speaking of which, we have George Papadopoulos joining for the full hour coming up here. He's going to take you right into the heart of the deep state conspiracy theory. We have that coming up here in just a moment. The FBI, I know FBI guys, these are the best in the world. But the people leading it, Comey and McCabe, and Strook and Page and all of these people, the lawyer who admitted, frankly, how crooked things were. I mean, the, the, when that testimony comes out, it's already come out partially. When that testimony comes out from the attorney for the FBI, you'll see. So I, I really say now we have to get down because this was a coup. This was an attempted overthrow of the United States government. President Trump saying what I think did happen here, which was a, a deep state effort to undo, to first prevent the election of Donald Trump and then to undo the election of Donald Trump and to use some of the most powerful tools in the federal government's surveillance and law enforcement arsenal to accomplish that task. We have a lot of unanswered questions here, things that I'm not going to let just fall by the wayside. And there's justice that still very much needs to be done. 
with that in mind, I want to bring on our friend George Papadopoulos now. I'm sure you've heard the name before. He got caught up right in the center of what became the Mueller probe and the FBI's earlier efforts to investigate Russian interference in the election. He ended up taking a guilty plea and spending a short stint uh, in, in jail for Mueller's, in my opinion, radically overzealous and politicized prosecutorial efforts. Uh, but he is the author, and he's on a book tour right now, of Deep State Target, How I Got Caught in the Crosshairs of the Plot to Bring Down President Trump. He's also a former Trump campaign advisor. George, man, so good to have you on. I know we talked before, but I'm glad to get you on the radio show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor. George, I so I want to spend some time. It's a Friday, and, you know, there's not the world's not on on fire right now with some huge crazy story that we got to spend our whole all of our time on. I, I want to get into because this this is what's coming next. You, your story, Carter Page's story. How did this whole Russia collusion narrative get spun up? So if you would just just walk me into it's the summer. I mean, I want you to take us back to the beginning beginning a little bit here and then work us all the way through to when Mueller is threatening you, threatening your girlfriend, uh, saying all kinds of stuff that I want you to explain to everybody. Tell me what was going on the summer of 2016. Your Trump campaign's in full swing. You're an advisor. You get some offer to go to the U.K. What happens? Yeah, well, oh, it's it's a very complicated story, and um, I'm just going to say this first. Uh, my entire case was never about Russia. It was about Israel, and Bob Mueller himself um, stated that unequivocally in his report. For some reason, reporters either intentionally overlooked it or they just did not read the fine print. But uh, if you see the Bob Mueller report, and I've even tweeted this on my account at George Papa 19, he states that George Papadopoulos uh, had search warrants and other surveillance warrants issued upon him to look into his, uh, quote, substantial context to Israel. And uh, But unfortunately for them, they said that... Uh, the evidence wasn't sufficient to charge me with a FARA violation. So why am I bringing this up? Because all of my encounters with these Western intelligence operatives, including, as you just mentioned, in the summer of 2016, they targeted me for those ties and not Russian ties, because, of course, I have no Russian ties. I've never been to Russia. I've never met a Russian official in my entire life. And as somebody who was working for five years at a neoconservative think tank in Washington, D.C., with people like Scooter Libby, Doug Fife, and Seth Cropsey, the last thing I was doing was promoting Russian interests throughout my entire career. So I just want to qualify exactly what my case was about at the 30,000-foot level and now get into the specifics. When I was meeting with these operatives, Joseph Mipsud, who, by the way, has recently been outed uh, last week living two blocks away from the U.S. Embassy in Rome. And uh, right now, the Italian government has issued some sort of uh, inquiry into him and uh, the university that he's currently being uh, paid uh, by called Link Campus. It's going to highlight probably another reason why Donald Trump called the Italian prime minister uh, last week, and they probably discussed this person. We're going to get to the bottom of exactly who was running this person at me, but let's let me get back to the summer of 2016. In the in, uh, in 2016, I had been working for a company named the London Center for International Law Practice. I know the London um, Center. Yeah. Yes, and anybody who does a simple, superficial uh, examination of this organization, you won't find any Russians working there. You'll find a lot of ex-Western uh, diplomats working there. 
the top lawyers of the biggest law firms in the world affiliated with this uh, organization and many MI6 CIA types who were directly or indirectly involved with this company. Now, immediately upon joining the Trump campaign, and as I just stated, I was working for this company, they were horrified. And they said, before you go, please come with us to Rome where we need you to meet some very important people. And a woman named Arvinder Sambe, who is a very important woman who's never been discussed before and involved in the Russia probe, but she's heavily involved in my case. And I think also related to the Bruce Orr um, involvement in the Trump Tower meeting or the Trump uh, Tower investigation, because Arvinder Sambe, who was a director at this company I was working for, unbeknownst to me at the time, had a used to work directly with Bob Mueller after 9-11, and she actually was working as a legal attache for the FBI in the UK while she was also affiliated with this company I worked for. So she tells me, why don't you go to Rome? We're going to introduce you to some people there who are going to help you with your Trump campaign stuff. And I said, of course, that's great. I go to Rome to this university called Link Campus. Now, why is Link Campus significant? Because Link Campus has been written about extensively by David Ignatius of the Washington Post and others. And this is a CIA FBI training school in Rome that trains not only um, Italian intelligence officials, but the CIA and FBI uh, previous directors and deputy directors have actually spoken at this university and have even taught courses at this university. So it's a very um, prominent school in Rome. And that's where I meet Joseph Mipsud. Now, Joseph Mipsud, just to fast forward and to summarize who this person is, for the last two years, he's been characterized by Bob Mueller as the man who was a Russian agent who fed me information in, in late April that the Russians had Hillary Clinton's emails. And uh, I was Wait, hold, hold on one second. This is I just just so I want to make sure everyone's following everything you're, you're telling me. Here. So you're, you're on the Trump campaign and they someone approaches you, this woman you just mentioned. And yeah. says, come to this university because we'd love to talk to you, basically. Like, you know, this is like connection building, rapport, that kind of thing. And Joseph Mifsud, he has been accused by Mueller of being essentially a Russian intelligence cutout? Yes. He has been accused and uh, portrayed to the world for two years as a Russian cutout who was feeding me information about the Russians possessing Hillary Clinton's emails. Now... I just want to make it clear, uh, Joseph Mifsud was introduced to me by an FBI intermediary that I used to work for in London named Arvinder Sambe. And when I get to Rome, I am introduced to Vincenzo Scotti, who was the former foreign minister of Italy and acted as the rector of this university. And he passed me along to meet Joseph Mifsud. Now, why is this meeting in Rome so important, besides that it led to this uh, incredible espionage scandal that we've been living the last couple of years? Just today... Just today, meaning this morning in Italy, on the front page of one of Italy's largest newspapers, Il Foglio, and I'm fortunate that my wife is Italian and she reads these papers and, uh, you know, she, she had many connections to the Italian government, so she knows Mipsud's network over there. Uh, she showed it to me and she said, do you know what this says? I said, no, what does it say? Joseph Mipsud's lawyer, Stephen Rowe, this prominent Swiss attorney who's representing him, went public and stated that when George Papadopoulos was introduced to Mipsud, Mipsud was working, quote, undercover. Now, what does that mean? When If I'm introduced to this person, Joseph Mipsud, at a spy school that trains the CIA and the FBI, and he's, quote, undercover when he's meeting with me, 
and then tells me three weeks after I meet with him that the Russians have Hillary Clinton's emails, which I believe, and I think many people now who know my case, believe it was some sort of uh, counterintelligence uh, sting operation. Against so this was me. a dangle. This was, I mean, in Intel, we would yeah. call this a dangle. They, they, they yeah. set you up by putting forth this, this guy, and they put you in the position, and they offered up this information, and then, you know, but, but keep going, but that, that's, that's the, the terminology for this. Keep going. Yes. So this is very important. So fast forward after Joseph Mifsud uh, introduces me to no one in the Russian government of, or no one of any substance in, in Russia, which I had been actively seeking at that time. Uh, he one day, as I'm trying to distance myself from him on April 26th, tells me that the Russians have Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, the, the dates are very important here because timelines have consequences. And well, by the way, and wait, I, I just got to jump in. Hillary Clinton's emails, not Podesta DNC emails. I never heard the word DNC, and I never heard the name John Podesta. Okay, because the Hillary Clinton email thing, that was a rumor that was out there that even I heard myself at the time about Russia. But keep going. Yes, so that's what I thought he was doing. I thought he was validating rumors, and I also uh, didn't understand why or how this individual, who couldn't even introduce me to the Russian ambassador in London, could have this information that apparently the rest of the world wanted or wanted to know about. So I was very suspicious about this person. And why is it important to understand that this meeting that he told me this information on was on April 26th? Because about 10 days before Joseph Mipson told me this information, I was contacted by the Australian embassy. And I met with a woman named Erica Thompson over uh, lunch, uh, by this Israeli diplomats, which there's a lot of uh, suspicion about who this person really was. And he's actually there. He's being scrutinized, actually, in Israel itself, from what I've been told presently. A, an Israeli diplomat who I had been put in touch with, who hated Trump, called Christian Cantor, in mid-April, uh, told me one day, I want to introduce you to my uh, quote-unquote girlfriend. And his quote-unquote girlfriend just happened to be an, an Australian intelligence officer who also uh, worked as a, a top uh, assistant to Alexander Downer. Later on, I would find that out. And I'm sitting there, and I'm a little uh, shocked that two potentially intel officers from two different countries are dating or uh, living together. So I didn't believe the, the story. Anyways, I went along, and I was just listening to this woman, Erica Thompson, in mid-April tell me and uh, that Trump is a pariah and that his views on global security and trade are viewed as hostile to uh, Australian interests and even to British interests. And, you know, many, you know, pundits at the time were, were talking about Trump this way, even to this present day around the world, many leaders are, don't like him. So I laughed it off. I didn't think too much about it. And then Joseph Mipsud on April 26 tells me this information. And five days after Joseph Mipsud tells me this information, I'm approached by two DIA officials from the U.S. Embassy in London uh, named Gregory Baker and Terrence Dudley. And these two officials, uh, I, I'll never forget it, um, the moment they meet with me, Gregory Baker starts speaking to me in Greek, suggesting that he knew that I was fluent in Greek and uh, other languages. And Terrence Dudley began to spe uh, speak to me about his thesis at Tufts University, which had to do with the energy business in the Caucasus, which I, which I was a recognized expert on in the Mediterranean. Um, so I right away felt that they were sent to meet me. I wasn't clear by who, but I played along, and uh, they were spending uh, probably the equivalent of $1,000 on me over four meetings, over drinks and dinner, uh, probing me about my ties to the Israelis. They were probing me about what Trump was doing with Russia, and then they were uh, telling me that I should go meet with uh, the U.S. defense attaché in Athens, who I, had, who I had known previously, Captain Robert Palm, 
where we were Can discussing. We, George, my, George, yeah. hold on. Wait, before we get the attache, I got to go into a quick yeah. break here. I want sure. you to continue on exactly where we are. Everyone, we're talking to George Papadopoulos, the man himself at the center of the special counsel Russia collusion delusion storm. He's got a book, Deep State Target, how he got caught in the crosshairs of the plot to bring down President Trump. We're going to have more with George. A lot more coming up. All right, we're back with George Papadopoulos, author of Deep State Target, how I got into the crosshairs of the plan to bring down President Trump. George was right at the center of this. All right, so George, as we left off, you were then being set up for a meeting you said where? Defense attache, where? Yes, in Athens. Now, I just want the listeners to understand, these people don't reach out to you unless they know that who you are and what connections you have. And I was on a almost first-name basis with the presidents and prime ministers in Israel, Cyprus, Greece. And my connections were so high in Egypt that I ended up brokering the meeting between Trump and Sisi at the UN General Assembly. So my contacts were all in the Mediterranean, and that's and this is what all of these operatives wanted to know about. That's why they tell me, um, you know, you need to go to Athens and you need to meet with uh, Captain Robert Palm, who I had met, I think, a year before, and uh, the U.S. Army attache, I forget his name. And I went to meet the U.S. Army attache in May uh, at his house. We had a nice dinner uh, and uh, in Athens, the U.S. Army attache, and he was probing me as well. And then I met Captain Robert Palm, uh, who a couple of days after I met with the Greek defense minister, who was a friend of mine, uh, Panos Kamenos, and where Panos Kamenos essentially was telling me that the, he wants to be NATO's best friend and uh, there's an opportunity for this Greece-Israel alliance to basically um, uh, upend the previous uh, security... Okay, how does this tie into Russia and the investigation, though? Because now we're getting down into the weeds. People might start to lose this. So what does this have to well, do well, with is, them thinking well, you're is, at the center of Russia collusion? Well, well, no, no, this is actually the the main point I'm making is I have nothing to do with Russia. I was targeted for a completely different thing, and all these operatives were testing me to see what I knew about this sensitive part of the world. Then you have this person, Joseph Mipsud, throwing this unsolicited information in my lap about emails. So he told he you about the emails. You did not tell him. Of course not. I mean, I was I was having a conversation with him as if I'm doing it with you right now. And you drop bizarre information in my lap that I didn't ask you for, like you have a gun and I didn't ask you if you have a gun or not. So that's what this information was. It was unsolicited. I didn't want it. And he never told me how he received it. Now, why is this so important? Let's, you're, you're right. Let's not get into the weeds with the, uh, the military attaches tar- uh, meeting with me about other topics, about Alexander Downer now. Now, Alexander Downer wanted to meet with me about 10 days after Joseph Mipsa told me this, and three days after the U.S. defense, uh, the DIA guys met with me in London. And who messaged me to set up this meeting between Downer and I? That same lady, Erica Thompson, who I was introduced to in mid-April by the Israeli diplomats. And she messaged me on May 6th. I looked back at my records the same day that I was meeting the DIA, and she said, my boss, Alexander Downer, would like to meet you on May 10th. Would you like to meet with him? I said, of course. I go to this meeting with Alexander Downer. I write about this extensively in my book of how bizarre this meeting was. And I feel immediately upon sitting down that this is an an asset that was sent to make contact with me and that he was spying on me. I testified under oath to Congress about my belief that he was spying on me. And I uh, revealed to the FBI and Bob Mueller himself that I felt that Alexander Downer was spying on me and recording my conversation because of his very bizarre behavior and his use of his phone and how he was pointing at me and other things. So when I met with Alexander Downer, 
there's this nonsense or this uh, this fake story of he and I being drunk at a meeting and talking about emails. This was a very belligerent uh, diplomat. He, the first thing I did when I sat down at the table was being shocked because he's telling me to stop, quote, bothering his good friend David Cameron and Donald Trump should stop bothering his good friend David Cameron. And I didn't understand what was happening. And then he started getting into these tangents about Cyprus and why my ideas on Cyprus are a threat to the British because uh, he doesn't uh, believe that uh, the Turks should leave Cyprus. And George, uh, George, I, I got to cut in here for a second because we have to yes. go again into a uh, sure. commercial break for a moment, but we're, we're going to come back uh, talking to George Papadopoulos, everybody. He is laying out the whole story, and this is where the investigation, the IG report, this is where everything is heading, is what happened with George Papadopoulos, the FBI investigation, Carter Page. We're getting it from the man himself. Deep State Target, How I Got in the Crosshairs of the Plan to Bring Down President Trump is the book. George Papadopoulos is the man. We have more with George. What happened in that meeting with Downer, and then what came after that? That's going to be in just a moment. Welcome back, team. We've got George Papadopoulos with us here for a deep dive into how he became the deep state target, which is also the title of his book, which I highly recommend to all of you who want to know what really happened in this Spygate scandal. Um, George, you were telling us about the meeting with Alexander Downer. Please continue. Yes. So I was reached out to by Alexander Downer's assistant, who had contacted me initially on April 15th. And she contacts me on May 6th and says, I would like, Alexander Downer would like to meet with you. And on May 6th, I had, I was reached out to by the DIA at the U.S. Embassy. So I go and I meet with Alexander Downer on May 10th. And this person, um, his behavior was so disturbing that I ended up reporting him to Bob Mueller and the FBI myself because I felt that he was spying on me and recording my conversation. And let me explain to you what was happening in this meeting. I sit down and right away he tells me that your boss and you better leave my good friend David Cameron alone. And I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I think something was happening between David Cameron and uh, Donald Trump regarding the Muslim ban comments. Then he starts to probe me about the U.S.-China relationship and uh, my ties to Cyprus and Israel and why those are threatening and why I shouldn't be uh, advising Donald Trump about those issues. Now, this is important to understand uh, because it deals it goes right into the Stefan Helper meeting, which I'll get to in a second about Israel and Cyprus. Um, after he starts asking me about the Mediterranean and China, he begins to pull his phone out. And I felt that he was overtly spying on me as he was holding it up front and looking in a very stern manner in my face. So I didn't understand what this person was doing. Instead, that he except that he was asking me questions. Okay, we get it. He's creepy. To, he's weird. Yeah. I, George, you know, George, yeah. so you yeah. met with yeah. Downer, and then what? Yeah. So then after that, I don't remember Russia ever being brought up by me. Uh, I don't remember the contents of anything regarding Russia. So this story where he disclosed information to the FBI about me and Russia makes no sense. And of course, there's no official intelligence from Australia. Okay. And, and for everybody at home, this is what's so important. You are the person who is listed. And you, we, you've gone through all your contacts and conversations here, and this is all on the record now with the special counsel. You were the person the FBI was saying, oh, we need to start a full field investigation in July of 2016 because someone tied to Trump knows about the Hillary emails that were hacked by Russia. And what you're telling us is that this is all crap and they set you up, basically. 
Uh, well, that's uh, <laughs> that's a very uh, good way to put it. And uh, and I told the FBI, I told Mueller, and I told Congress. I never told Downer anything about these emails. And even Downer himself has contradicted himself at least three times in subsequent interviews. He's given about whatever he thought was said. So of course, so so, so, so the the, the pretext for the entire investigation on you was based on a false premise, which is that you were running around drunk and running your mouth about how Hillary's emails got hacked by the Russians and you knew about it and the Trump campaign knew about it. You're telling me that is because that's a story the media ran with. You're telling me that is a lie. Of course, it's a lie. And I'll just quote uh, Mark Meadows, Congressman Mark Meadows, from a podcast he gave, I think, two weeks ago, where he stated that Papadopoulos was around 5% of the predicate that went into whatever this investigation was, and 95% was about the dossier and other things. So, of course, this was just a convenient cover story where you have a Clinton ally like Alexander Downer lying about a meeting and stating, oh, yeah, this guy said something about emails, and it just becomes a convenient cover story for Americans to to, sim- to simplify things for Americans. Okay, and so once... Once that meeting happens, you're done with the Downer meeting. It's very weird. When do you realize that the federal government is is coming after you? I I start. I didn't uh, have an idea until I was interviewed by the FBI in January of 2017. Um, but I did believe that my meeting with Stefan Helper in September of 2016, where he paid me three thousand dollars for a paper on the. Uh, Israeli energy business, and he flew me to London. I felt that he was recording and spying on me because he was very bizarre and very uh, hostile the way that Downer was. So I didn't understand anything except I was having very strange, unproductive meetings with these various people until the FBI came to my house in January 2017. And uh, I had a... So right when Trump takes... Right when Trump actually becomes president, right around then, you get an FBI visit. I'm attending the inauguration at a party with Reince Priebus two days before the FBI comes to my house. Um, and I believe the FBI came to me and Flynn within 48 hours of one another. So clearly they uh, wanted to get after him and I very quickly. And uh, there's probably a reason for that that's just that has yet to be understood. So they come to my house. They're talking to me for three hours about numerous content, uh, disc- things, including uh, the Israeli angle that I just told you about. Uh, and then they ask me if I heard anything from Russians or about he- hacked emails. And I say, of course not. But a Maltese man named Joseph Mipson told me this information. And then later on, uh, we find out that this person had been working as an operative for Western intelligence. So I'm not clear as to exactly what I lied about or what my entire case was really about regarding Russia when we now know it was a complete setup. Right. So uh, what, what, the FBI came to you, they talked to you and you told them all this stuff. And then... When does the special counsel enter the picture? So the special counsel you. Uh, enters the uh, yeah the special counsel enters the picture when I'm arrested in a savage like manner in the summer of 2017 after I'm coming off a flight from Italy going back to the United States. So wait, so you States, spoke to the I'm, FBI in January 2017. The special counsel arrested you. You had no other contact in the summer of 2017. No, nothing, nothing. I was uh, arrested in a savage like manner without even understanding what I had done wrong. If anything, how did they arrest you? Tell me about the takedown. I want to know. Sure, sure. So I'm on a I'm on a, a shuttle bus, the you know those famous shuttle buses at Dulles Airport, and I'm looking across from me and I see two men in suits and ties, while everybody else is in sweatpants because we're all coming off a 15-hour flight. And I know that these were agents. And as soon as I get to the kiosk, they uh, rush me to a room where there's seven agents. They're waiting for me. They're rummaging through my bags, looking for something. And and whoever reads my book will understand what I think they were looking for because we don't have time to talk about it now. But uh, I then told I'm under arrest. My Miranda rights are unread to me. Um, I have handcuffs and shackles thrown around my hands and feet. I'm thrown in the backseat of a black tinted out SUV and I'm in a cell 
uh, without being given access to my lawyers. Um, and I'm looking in front of a judge the next day where I'm looking, where they're saying you're looking at 25 years in prison without me even being shown an arrest warrant, read my Miranda rights, or told initially why I was being arrested. So if you read my book, you'll understand why I think the FBI... Uh, uh, Wait, but 25 ruined. years in prison for what? Well, they were what, what they were trying to do was uh, f- charge me with some nonsense obstruction of justice charge that made no sense and uh, lying to the FBI. And then they had this FARA violation, um, apparently, with uh, my ties to Israel. But that was what their uh, nonsense case was all about. Of course, they used uh, tactics probably that the KGB would use on their own citizens to, uh, you know, screw me up psychologically. And that's why I probably pled guilty so quickly without actually understanding what my case was really all about. Because when you're dealing in these counterintelligence investigations, so much exculpatory evidence that, especially in my case, which is it's clear now, was is never provided to the defendant. And uh, at that point, this is uh, 2017. People think Russia collusion is real. They think that Trump's in the pocket right. of Russia. And you so got you got my... totally ambushed by these guys. What, what is uh, the lie course, that they claim yeah. that you told that then led to your what was a two week prison sentence? My 11 nights in. Uh, in uh, this minimum security uh, camp, which looked more like a university dorm than a prison, um, was because, and it's in, the, in my record now, uh, on the, of my status of offenses, because I, I misremembered when I met Joseph Mipsud a year before the FBI came to my house. They say that I said I met him in April, of, or I'm sorry, in, uh, before I joined the campaign initially, but then they showed documents that suggested I met him while I was on the campaign. So it was so stupid, so ridiculous that I don't want to speak for the honorable judge who sentenced me, of course, and I'm not doing that. But to get an 11-night sentence at a, at a, for a federal uh, crime, uh, you know, people even in the prison were laughing about it and saying, what, what on earth was this? And uh, I think... What was know, it like when you dealt with... Did you get to talk to Mueller directly? And did you ever get to look at him and just be like, why are you doing this to me, dude? Um, I, I, I explained in my book the moment when I realized the FBI set me up, and it was in December of 2017, when they pretty much made it clear to me that Joseph Mifsud had been working for them the whole time. But we don't have time to, to, for me to get into the exact details. But I never saw Mueller. I was dealing with uh, Andrew Goldstein, uh, this guy Zelinsky, and um, Janine Ree. And uh, the FBI agents who took me down. And what and were they? What were they like, though? Jeannie Ree. I mean, she's part of the special counsel. Were they? Did you think that they people, were fair-minded? No, of course not. These people. My impression of them was that they were Hillary Clinton's uh, personal lawyers. Um, that they basically were out to get any scalp they can, just to showcase that this is what happens when Hillary Clinton loses. This is what happens when her honors, uh, you know, in the in the mud. And when you help a person like Donald Trump get elected president, they there was no crime here. Uh, I think Mueller and the FBI and even Peter Strzok, according to his own text messages, uh, that there's no there there regarding Russia collusion. They knew there was nothing going on with us in Russia, especially in my case, where I explained to you I was under investigation for a completely different thing that had nothing to do with yeah. Russia. And, and FARA, so especially this, yeah. FARA with Russia is one thing because people were all paranoid about Russia. Fara with Israel is not something that in any normal time anybody would be prosecuted criminally for in Washington, D.C. It just wouldn't happen. I know that wouldn't happen. Well, I, uh, like I said, I'll just, uh, I just uh, will refer you and the listeners to actually read the Mueller report, and you'll see in, where, what he writes about that aspect. No, no, I've seen the part of it. I'm just saying that you got, well, I mean, they, they, you got hosed, yeah. my friend. That's oh, what that was course, all about. Yes, yes, and I agree with you. So when they actually told me they were going to charge me with that, I was uh, half laughing, half uh, shocked. 
because, uh, like you said, this doesn't happen in normal times. Uh, clearly, there was a vendetta against the Trump campaign, and anyone who even made a slight mistake was going to have the kitchen sink thrown at them. And in my case, they went to the extent where they were probably going to try and jeopardize a security relationship with our one of our top allies just to put me in jail. So it, it, it just goes to show you the depths of... Uh, hell that these people went to to go after myself and probably Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and uh, people like Corsi, who fortunately didn't plead guilty. But um, this was a real witch hunt. This was a persecution. I don't even call it a prosecution. And, uh, you know, I'm just very happy now to finally have a chance to breathe and get my story out. And hopefully uh, it's used now to uh, assist the new investigations into the investigation. Right. I want to take us there next, George. I want to know what you want answers to what you hope the inspector general and the DOJ, I mean, I, I have people that I trust. I don't know, George, how you feel about this, but people that I trust say that, that, uh, uh, Barr is a good man and an honest man. And he wants answers about what happened, including to you. Uh, so I, I want to come back to this part of the story in a moment. We're talking to George Papadopoulos, author of deep state target, which you can get now on Amazon. And we'll be right back with George. Stay with me. All right, everyone, we're talking to George Papadopoulos, man at the center of all this Russia collusion nonsense, as he's been pointing out. He had nothing to do with Russia, knew nothing about Russia, never been to Russia. And yet the special counsel came after him like he was Pablo Escobar. Deep State Target is George's book. George, okay, so now, you know, you you went to this you went through this whole process. Uh, Clearly, they came after you. They're trying to justify stuff, in my opinion, that had been done all along the way. They're trying to cover their tracks by using you as a fall guy. You're a scapegoat for both the FBI deep state effort and then for the special counsel Mueller to justify what they're doing and create this perception of some kind of international nexus of collusion. What do you want answers to now? What do we have to find out in order to get some justice and accountability here? Well, uh, that's a great question. And I think Congress already has a lot of these answers, but they're being coy. And what do I mean? My uh, testimony to Congress has been recently uh, released, I think, two weeks ago. I, I testified in front of the, uh, the House Oversight Committee um, four months ago, where I was in front of Mark Meadows, John Ratcliffe, and others, where if you actually look at the transcript now, all 239 pages of it, it's actually a very fast read. You can almost infer yourself that Congress or members of the U.S. government themselves are in possession of transcripts of my meetings with people like Joseph Mipsud, Alexander Downer, and Stefan Helper. Um, so what that suggests to me is that these clearly were people looking to entrap me, and they were working with uh, the FBI or the CIA or even probably the British intelligence services um, to either uh, spy on me or to dirty me up, and now the U.S. government has is in possession of those um, you're, I want those to be released if they, if, they are, if they do exist. I know Mark Meadows has been tweeting a lot lately about uh, so-called tapes, the Papadopoulos tapes that he wants released. So I'm very curious to see what he's talking about and who was actually uh, recording me, if not one of those men or all three of those men. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, Donald Trump must declassify the 302s, the FISA warrants, and the FISA applications, because I have been told myself that I had a FISA warrant issued on me, and I also was told by somebody that Michael Flynn had a uh, FISA warrant issued on him as well, not, not simply this Carter Page FISA. So um, it's going to be very interesting to see how Stefan Helper as well, who, re- who was uh, basically um, uh, spying on Flynn and I at different times, is going to be revealed as uh, an informant of uh, the intelligence services and how the information, no matter how bad it was, was being fed to the FISA court from him. So I want to just see, you know, the three things I really want to have exposed are 
Uh, the roles of the three men I just labeled, Alexander Downer, Stefan Halper, and Joseph Mipsud, I want all the FISAs declassified, and I want the 302s declassified. Because uh, by doing this, you're really going to get to the origins of how this investigation all started, and it will prove once and for all how dirty and salacious the information was, the evidence was, that was used to basically target us and illicitly spy on us. And uh, now that we have all this new information out, including that the dossier was a fake and uh, Joseph Mipsud was never a Russian spy, I'm very curious to see uh, what kind of information was used to get FISA warrants and uh, wiretap uh, members of the Trump campaign. So I think the only way to get to the bottom of that is, of course, if Donald Trump uh, uh, declassifies it. And I'm very happy people like Mark Meadows and John Ratcliffe are on the on the on the worst on the are, are going on the on the offensive now, and on the on offense now and asking him to do it. So it's a it'll be a good time to be an American when that's revealed. It's going to be a great moment in American history, and and by doing that, it'll probably safeguard uh, Trump's uh, reelection in 2020. Because if he doesn't go on the offensive, you might have rogue uh, CIA and FBI elements. Who might go after him again, and we might have an entire new scandal next year. So I think he has to put a stop to it, and that and that's the only way he can do it. Chris, we've only got about a minute, uh, George, and and this has been fascinating. I just want to ask you: Has anyone from the White House kind of just reached out to you to say, you know, keep your chin up and stay in the fight? Uh, you know, I know that my attorneys are very close um, with people working in the White House. Um, I am just keeping out of it. I don't want to, you know, be viewed as somebody interfering in anything because I understand that there's still ongoing investigations with uh, Mueller, and there's clearly going to be new investigations by Barr and and uh, Horowitz and Huber. So I'm not reaching out to them. I don't know if my lawyers have been in touch with them, but my goal right now is simple, and that is going on programs like yours, going on TV, uh, and exposing the truth and giving names, dates, and. Uh, details of encounters that I had that I believe were clearly setups, and they were setups that. Uh, were designed, as you stated earlier, to use me as a fall guy to justify this uh, illicit uh, scandal and investigation into the Trump presidency, which almost uh, led to his impeachment. So All right. George, major, Papa, George Papadopoulos, everybody. Deep State Target is the book. It is available on Amazon now. George, man, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and, and really telling your story in a way that we needed to hear it. And we're going to follow up with you as we get more answers. Thanks again, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you, Buck. How crazy is the left when it comes to the control of language? It's a recurring theme on the show, my friends. I'd like to talk to you about it because the left thinks that they can and sometimes do win debates merely by telling us what words we can use in the debate, what words we can use in the discussion. And in something called Commonweal Magazine, which I'd never heard of before, I saw this piece on... My alma mater, Amherst College, which looks all New Englandy and cutesy and all the stuff you see, the literature online, and, you know, they, it's one of the more elite liberal arts colleges. You know, that's right. A little pat on the back there. Who cares? Um, well, apparently I do because I just brought it up. But no, I don't. But yes, I do. But no, I don't. But no, it's really a, a school that you would think has its feet on the ground based on the way it projects itself. But when I was there, it was already losing its mind, and now it has just completely gone wacko. There's a piece up on something called the Common Language Guide. The Common Language Guide. Uh, and this is from the Amherst College Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Now, Amherst only has 1,800 students, 
and has an Office of Diversity and Inclusion staff of 20 people. There are 20 full-time staffers whose only job is just to talk about diversity and inclusion at this school where there are only 1,800 students to begin with. The table of con- I got to walk you through some of this. The table of contents, general terminology, isms, race and ethnicity, gender and gender identity, sexual and romantic identity, class, politics and policy, global power and inequality, and disability. Uh, this is fascinating. Uh, and it is a very interesting look into the mind of the AOC far-left, Bernie Sanders-esque wing of the Democrat Party today. It lays out with surprising specificity terminology like accomplice, which I hadn't heard in this context before. Um, And this is what it... So there's a term that the left... And some of this is, I just want you to hear some of the left-wing words that they are now using in order to win debate, to win discussion. And and we are told that we should all use these as well. Ally is somebody who does things the left likes. So if you are very pro, and this is all covered in this Amherst College uh, common language guide. Keep in mind, it's so Orwellian because this is uncommon language. This is terms that they've either changed the definition of or made up wholesale. So that brings me to things like ally, which is if you do things the left likes, you're an ally. You're one of the the good people. Accomplice is one of the bad people. This is, quote, a term coined by the Indigenous Action Network to critique the ways in which ally as an identity term has been deployed absent of action, accountability or risk taking. There has been some critique of this because of its association with criminality when many marginalized communities are viewed as already always criminal. Okay, let me unpack this a little bit. We're we're taking a drive down. We're going off the rails into left-wing crazy train here. That's what's happening. They are using this term now to indict people who take a position that is non-active, right? Or rather, or refuse to take a position the left likes. So think of it this way. If you oppose the left, you're a bad guy. But if you just won't do anything, if you won't be an ally to left-wing causes, then you are an accomplice to, I guess, right-wing bad people causes. Right? That's the way they use this term. And their only problem with it is not that this will obviously be abused, but that the, the word accomplice, kind of like some say the word thug has racial undertones, they're concerned that accomplice because of its use in the criminal uh, use in the criminal justice system has racial undertones. I don't know what to tell you folks. This is it gets it gets crazier. It gets crazier. Here we go. Fragility, hegemony, horizontal violence, inclusion, intersectionality. Now you hear me talk. This is kind of like the 101 progressive action vocab deep dive. That's what we're really doing here. So if you listen to this and you go through with this, maybe maybe it's worth listening to this part of the show more than once. Podcast it, my friends. Uh, 
intersectionality, you hear me talk about it. Those who were like, what is that? Which is fine, because I didn't know what intersectionality was until about two or three years ago, I think. And I'm somebody who likes to think I have a pretty decent vocab. Here's how they define intersectionality. A term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw to name the intersections of multiple mutually reinforcing systems of oppression, power, and privilege. This was first used to describe the experiences of black women in the legal system. Intersectional theorists look at how the individual experience is impacted by multiple axes of oppression and privilege. These forces compound and complicate one another. Um, Microaggressions, the verbal and nonverbal indignities and denigrating messages targeting people of historically and presently marginalized backgrounds that communicate hostile, derogatory or negative slights and insults. The accumulation and frequency of such everyday occurrences can have a negative impact on the psychological, emotional and physical well-being of the person impacted. That's right, folks. Microaggressions, which the left believes can include And remember, microaggressions added up are what creates intersectionality, which is the intersections of mutually reinforcing systems of oppression, right? So intersectionality is the oppression matrix. Think of it that way, like we're all in the matrix, Neo. Intersectionality is the oppression matrix. And microaggressions are, in some cases, the not just subtle, but unintentional and unknowing infractions of intersectionality according to the left like infractions that add up to intersectionality so you don't think necessarily what you're doing is wrong if you say to somebody who has a really funky name and is clearly not american based on their accent hey where are you from you think that you're asking on a college campus hey like you seem like you have a cool personal story and i would like to establish some common ground with you as a human being who just respects and likes other human beings so tell me where you're from or tell me something about you like you know where you grew up intersectionality and microaggression theory tells you how dare somebody assume that you are the other you might say well hold on a second if their name is really unusual and their accent is really unusual it's a pretty good no you can't make that get you don't know You don't know they came from some other place. And you're by asking them if they come from somewhere else, you are otherizing them. Now, I'm sure that they would not apply this logic to somebody who's like, my name is Sven, 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 like, that's fine. Because Sven Svensson doesn't fit into intersectional oppression theory. And therefore, microaggressions against Sven Svensson don't count. See what I'm doing? We're, we're just we're really getting into how all this stuff, all this stuff ties together for the leftists. Then they they go into their own definitions of oppression and prejudice and privilege and power and social identity and social justice and anti-oppression orientation to social and political organizations. That is the that is the definition that they use. Ooh, do do you think do you think that we are even a little bit done with this? Common, common language guide, folks. Does this all sound common? How many of you walk around like, oh my gosh, like am I intersectional, like microaggression theory that I'm reading right now? It's just like really upsetting me and I feel triggered. I need a safe space. You don't use any of those words because you're you're not brainwashed by the left. They've created a, a whole separate 
way of speaking about reality that is steeped in a victim mindset and that uses terms that not only signal to other people that they are part of the virtuous and good left, but that they use these terms because you're supposed to use them. And by using them, you are buying into the ideology. You know, this is like, uh, instead of saying illegal aliens, say undocumented. Instead of saying political correctness, talk about intersectionality. And everybody's going to know what side of that issue you're on, which is that political correctness is not something we have to worry about. Then they get into the isms. Ableism, ageism, six, cis sexism, classism, ethnocentrism, eurocentrism, heterosexism, racism, sexism. They have an, a guide to isms here. You cannot make this stuff up, folks. This is, and they're saying this is common. How many of you have ever heard or said the word cis? I can't even read it. Cis-sexism, which, if you're wondering, is the system of belief that cisgender individuals are the privileged class and are more natural, normal, or acceptable than transgender, genderqueer, non-binary, and or gender non-conforming. This belief manifests itself as the systematic denial of rights to trans and non-binary people and their routine mistreatment. So if you have any issue at all with transgender rights or transgenderism or the transgender ag- transgender agenda, say that 10 times fast, you are a cis-sexist who is committing microaggressions in a system of intersectionality and are opposed to social justice and are therefore an accomplice instead of an ally. See what we did there? We're bringing it all together, bringing it all home. There's more. The Amherst College president, remember, this is my college. I went here. I have very little affiliation with it now. It has not gone on notice that they used to love to hear me talk about foreign policy to all the kids and invite me up there. And now, no, I do not get invited up there. They do not want to hear from me because uh, I'm conservative. Therefore, it's, it's like I'm the black sheep of the Amherst family now. They, they pretend that I don't exist. They're, they're not into the buckster. Um, I want to tell you what happened, though, on campus, because this was so bizarre and so radical a document that the president took it down. But just, do you think that do you think it stopped there, folks? Oh, no, it goes on. Let's keep this deep dive going. So we're back talking about this Amherst College common language guide that was put out that that is a re- really a, a piece by piece explanation Uh, that goes through the words you're supposed to use, the very politically charged and very specifically chosen and manufactured words and concepts that go along with them that favor left-wing, very progressive ideology. And here's a there's an analysis of it written by Rand Cooper, who's also an Amherst alum. And this just gives you a sense of what this guide is like. Quote, reading the guide is like stumbling into a trade journal article where specialized language demarcates territory and warns off intruders. Bristling with acronyms and niche designations, it elaborates a system of identity via a profusion of phyla, QTPOC, AFAB, assigned female at birth, FTM, MX, XTX, a response by trans folks 
who reject the terms FTM and MTF. I don't, folks, I don't even know what this stuff is, and I read about this a, a fair amount. We wander into the internal gender politics squabbles as when we learn that boy, a term describing a masculine presenting queer black woman whose gender presentation can be more fluid and or androgynous than completely masculine, was purposely coined to be different from stud, ag, aggressive girl, because of the rigid conformity to masculinity in those communities. Meanwhile, TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, denotes feminists who reject trans women because they were once boys. While this view has been rejected by most queer and trans communities, the guide notes that TERF ideology still does infiltrate many women's spaces. End quote. I mean, I have no idea what the heck I just read to you, okay? I mean, I, I, and I am somebody who spends a, a fair amount of time trying to understand the left and leftist ideology and, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminist. That is my first ever experience with that, which, which yeah, that's the thing that we're talking about here. And then you get into some other stuff. I mean, this is... There, there is a the common language guide, and this does feel very Soviet in a way, is the most uncommon language imaginable because it's it's made up. It's made up language. It's words that did not exist until about five minutes ago. And now we're in a situation where if you don't use these terms, you don't understand these terms. You are who wants who come on class. Who's who knows what you are? Ah, yes, that's right. You are part of the problem because you my friends are an accomplice instead of an ally uh, dividing people in this way it's a very very powerful tool to get social um you know social obedience this author that wrote this piece writes another basic problem lies in its language amorous guy defines social justice as a vision of the world where all people and uh, can live and be perceived as fully human on all levels. But if this is the vision animating the document, then why does it sound so non-human? Trapped in its arid jargon, one thirsts for something resembling living language. Instead, what we get is an endless proliferation of bureaucratic dicta and a roster of attitudes ordained by fiat. And so it may have originated in a search for understanding and tolerance, devolves into a relentless categorization of human experience driven by a nearly compulsive preoccupation with the ways people can insult and wound one another. <sighs> yeah. This is language that I have to say is, is meant to shut down debate. That's what's so fascinating about this. This is language that if you use it, you are essentially waving the white flag. Was that a microaggression? I don't know. Can I say white flag? Not clear. If you embrace the terminology, you are accepting all that goes into it. If you don't understand or reject the terminology, then you're part of the problem. This was so Orwellian and out of control that the president of Amherst College, Carolyn Martin, whom I can't say I know or have met, the former president of Amherst used to be Marx was his last name. I kid you not. And President Marx at my college graduation told all of us instead of hey great job guys here's some advice for the future that amherst was not living up to its social justice obligations because while you guys got to go here a lot of people with less economic means did not 
So we need to take in more poor people who don't pay. It's a great thing to say to a whole bunch of people whose families and the students with massive student loans and families that really, in many cases, took quite a hit, struggled to pay for the tuition. Um, But Carolyn Martin initially took it down, this common language guide from Amherst College where where you get all the different left-wing jargon jammed into one document. Uh, she, She took it down. She said that this is not something that is, you know, representative of where the school should be ideologically, and you know, she had some uh, some problems with it. Um, at least the way it was presented. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to eleven. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed, Friday Roll Call, which is bittersweet because bittersweet symphony that's life is what we have to handle right now. Trying to make some money, trying to sell some something, then you die. I, don't, I forget what the... You know what I'm talking about, Mark. It's a good song. Everybody who's my age secretly loves bittersweet symphony. Great song. Fun. Right, yeah. Fun fact about that song, or not so fun, depending on who you are. They sampled some Rolling Stones music in it without giving uh, any legal attribution or payment. And so, you know, the Rolling Stones actually own the rights to that song. Isn't that pretty crazy? As if the Rolling Stones needed the cash. But you mess with the Stones, you get the rocks, son. That's how they do it. All right. uh, Let's see here. We have first up. Whoa, that is that is long. Buck, after three years, is from Thomas of ever escalating invasion of our southern border. Don't you think it is time we get some direct, real answers from the intransigent progressives? Simple yes or no answers like the ones always insisted on by these snobs at these oversight interrogation hearings. Does the U.S. have or not have active embassies in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador and Mexico? Yes or no. Does the immigration law specify that anyone requesting refugee or asylum status apply at the nearest embassy or consulate? Yes or no. Would it not be less of an encumbrance and expense to transport a dozen lawyers to each of those countries to process applications for refugee or asylum status rather than have 10,000 of them illegally loitering in our country awaiting status determination? Yes or no. Where is the benefit of having 35 million illegals in this country absorbing benefits intended for actual U.S. citizens? Why are we spending U.S. taxpayer money on third world countries that refuse to cooperate with our laws? What is the purpose of having foreign embassies and consulates if citizens of foreign countries refuse to comply, etc., etc.? Thomas, very interesting thoughts and analysis here. Uh, the difference between a uh, asylum claim and a refugee claim, I believe, is that asylum claims happen inside the United States. So you get into you get to America and say, I want asylum. Refugees apply externally to U.S. borders. So that is an important distinction. Brian writes, Buck, good opening on Rising today on Biden's run. Wow, somebody who is part of Team Buck who watches Rising. That's that's always fun. Why is nobody on either side of the media game talking about Biden and his son, along with then Secretary of State John Kerry and his stepson's blatant corruption in Ukraine and China? Some seriously messed up stuff that Glenn Beck went into detail on last week. No one is picking up on it on any network outside 
the blaze. Uh, well, I can tell you, actually, my my colleague, John Solomon, uh, has broken some big stories on this one. John has been on the forefront of it. Uh, so, yes, indeed, my colleague, John Solomon, and uh, the executive director for Digital at the Hill, he has been really the one pushing this story. And I think Glenn probably picked up on some of his reporting. But, uh, Brian, we talk about it here on the show. You know, I should have John on probably next week. Maybe he'll do that. Maybe you've given me quite an idea, my friend. I like it. I like it like that. Yeah, baby. I like it like that. You guys remember that? I get so, I get so, I like it like. Mark, that is not quite as good of a song, but I refuse to believe that you have never had a few shots of tequila too many and swayed those hips, my friend. Maybe not to that song, but I've done that. All right. Fair enough. Fine. Be that way. Corey writes, the chief from the classic Beverly Hills Cop. That's the quote. Wow, look at you. Is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning? Who disabled an unmarked unit with a banana? You must be the pride of your department. If you go listen to that on YouTube or something, you're going to say, Wow, Buck Sexton really does sound like that crotchety old police commissioner. You you will say that. That will be how you feel. Um, podcast listener, just heard the Beverly Hills cop quote, Brian, original Saturday squad. All right, so a lot of you. Owen, yes, I got the Beverly Hills cop reference from Thursday's show, just playing it on Google Play. All right, bro. All right, all right. You guys, you know, you guys got me here, but savor the flavor. This is not going to happen again. Or actually, no, it probably will happen again. TJ writes, P.S. Dan Bongino had your rising uh, clip on his podcast this morning. Yee, yee. Um, I got I to gotta tell you guys something. Uh, Dan Bongino has always been a super nice and stand-up guy to me in this business. And there are not that many people that I could say that I've interacted with who have gone out of their way to be helpful and you know, they're being helpful. So um, I'm a, uh, I, I really am a big Dan Bongino supporter. I think he's a great dude. And I think uh, it's really cool to see him have a, I mean, he's had a breakout in the last 12 or 18 months where he's really now built, uh, built a, a Dan Bongino empire and I'm happy for him. And he's a great dude. And he has been a behind the scenes friend to team buck for, for years now. Uh, oh, and also, TJ wrote this. Uh, Buck, go ahead and tell Jamal that his new nickname for Elizabeth Warren, E-dubs, is lame. She should just embrace Pocahontas instead. Her path to the nomination just around the river bend. Huh. Ah, well, okay. Um, hmm. I don't know if that's going to work, my friend. I don't know what just around... Oh, is that is that from the movie Pocahontas? Mark, fact check. Is that from... Just around the river bend. Is that from like Pocahontas? I'm in kind of a singing mood today. All right. Taylor, Beverly Hills cop reference. Jeremy, Beverly Hills cop reference. All right. All right. You guys. Yeah, yeah. You, you got me. I got to make it a little harder for this team. The movie quotes. The sly movie quotes maybe aren't sly enough. That is from Pocahontas. It is from Pocahontas. Just Google. I, I just always know that one that's like, can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? I'm like, I don't think the mountain has voices. And I don't think the wind has colors with which one can paint. So to paint with all the colors of the wind, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, Pocahontas. Maybe write some lyrics that make sense. Just putting that out there. 
Jeremy also writes, Mayor Bill de Blasio proposing a Green New Deal and regulations for NYC and hearing about Connecticut's unreasonably high taxes further reinforces my choice to live in the middle of the country. I think you should consider moving off the coast and inland where your dream 400-square-foot apartment will cost about the same as your cell phone bill versus the cost of a kidney in in D.C. Just food for thought. Shields high. Uh, Jeremy, if we can set up a major media hub where I can find gainful employment in the middle of the country, that sounds great to me. Um, in the meantime, unfortunately, I got I to gotta be where the jobs are for somebody in my business, and that tends to be New York and D.C. if you're going to do politics. Kimberly, I'm not usually one to fuss, but I'm making an exception. The podcast, your voice is so low, I had to put the volume up to 26. Still love you bunches, OSS, Kimberly. Well, Kimberly, I don't think that was a, po- a problem for everybody. So it might just be your, your setup. Um, I can't tell you yay or nay, but I haven't heard that from... Usually when I get three or four complaints about podcast issue volume or something, that's usually on our end. But if it's just one, I've only seen one today, then it's usually on somebody else. Although Glenn just wrote in here. Here we go. Glenn, hey, podcast listener. I heard you talking about the Avengers movie. I wanted to point out that every time I see the movie Captain America Winter Soldier, I can't help but think how the bad guys, Hydra, are a textbook definition of the Democrat Party. They want to eliminate all conservative and potential opposition with their warships. Ask Mark if he made that connection. Mark, did you make that connection? I try to separate politics in my fun movies. So, no, I don't think of it that way. That's probably a smart move, dude, you know, because, see, I, I have this thing where I try to do that as well. But if somebody really goes out there as an actor and says just crazy, annoying things, I can't I don't know. I can't always let it go. You know, I, I wish I was better with that. But I, I have certain actors trying to I mean, Tim Robbins for a while was just insufferable. Oh, um, my friend with the chihuahua that tries to pee on my foot during the interview, uh, Alyssa Milano. That's right. That chihuahua, it smelled conservative on me and tried to replace it with some some other smell. That's what happens. I don't remember his name. He was a decrepit little chihuahua. Not quite as decrepit as the dachshund with the bad back that tried to bite my face off at the baby shower in New Jersey. Story that many of you have heard. Perhaps a story I'll have to tell you another time. It's just an important safety tip for all of you. Just because a dog looks decrepit and super old doesn't mean without knowing the dog or the getting the owner's permission, you should try to lift it up like a baby near your face. It is a bad move. Even with a, a dachshund that looks like it could have a heart attack at any moment. It is not smart. That's what I'm here for, to keep you guys safe. Thomas, I agree with you. The Avengers superhero line of movies are subpar at best. I try to like them. I just can't do it. Shields high. I mean, Thomas, to me, the Avenger movie, it's like all this... You know, noise and you're and all these guys flying around and all this stuff that's going on. And yeah, there's not a lot beyond that. You know, it's just and it's always I feel like the movie always ends the same way. There's just a lot of, you know, the earth is going to end. But then there's all these people flying around or monsters or something. And the Avengers and Hulk is like Hulk strong and like grabs something and smash it. Hulk smash. And then you got Iron Man who's shooting ray guns out of his hands, out of his out of his, you know, wherever. Hmm. Julian Beverly Hills Cop, you are correct. Not a bad impression either. Thank you, Julian. I think that I think that Beverly Hills Cop commissioner impression is one of my one of my sleepers, one of my better ones. Wayne Buck, love the beard. Thank you so much, Wayne. I appreciate it. You know, I, people are very 
they're very uh, it's interesting because I've never been personally subject to this before. They're uh, they're either really into the beard or they're like shave now. There's not a lot of middle ground from the folks that I know in in life. So that's the thing. Oh, we, it's Friday, so we got double roll call. Remember, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be a part of the roll call action. That is the way to do it. Uh, you can just write it on Facebook. And I always love when people go, I don't know if this is the right place, but I'm going to write. It. Trust me, if you're writing me a Facebook message at Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, it's the right place. Um, I believe my friend Raheem Kassam is going to be in for me on Monday. I'm taking a couple of days uh, of R&R, which I'm very much looking forward to. Hopefully, you can get some sunshine. Uh, but... Not time for that quite yet. We got a little more roll call on the flip side. Stay with me. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. It is time for the roll call. The best call is the roll call. I guess this is the second roll call, so maybe I shouldn't be quite as excited. But I get excited, folks. I like to hear from all of you. Harry sent me a link that I cannot read on air because it's a link. Roger Buck, my question should have been more clear. The leftist caterwaul about student loan debt and how college should be free. How is it fair for some to risk their lives to earn their college education while others do nothing, shields high. Now, Roger, it's a very good point. You know, I mean, the GI Bill is earned. The GI Bill is the American people fulfilling their end of a contract with our brave men and women who serve this country in the military, right? That's, that's an earned thing. That's not a giveaway. That's, you know, I give you money, you give me apples, right? This is a transaction. And if you don't give somebody money for their apples, that's not good. We owe this to those who serve. That's a different thing than people saying, well, I just think it'd be nice to give free college to folks. Victor writes, hey, Buck, not familiar with the Mormon faith, eh? I recommend going to see the Book of Mormon on Broadway. It'll tell you everything you need to know. Plus, it's absolutely the funniest thing I have seen since Team America World Police. I'm sure their temples are swell. Still no comparison to European Catholic cathedrals and churches. Shields high. Love you, Victor. Uh, Victor, I can tell you, I did see the Book of Mormon, and I remember when my uh, my former boss and now longtime friend, uh, Mr. Glenn Beck, saw the Book of Mormon, and I remember t- hearing him talk about it a bit. Uh, I thought it was a little profane. I thought it was a little, there was a little too much cursing for me. I mean, I'm not somebody who is prudish, but I, I do think that there are, there are some limits, and uh, I, I didn't love it as much as a lot of other people, so... There is that. Uh, Mary writes, I just fell in love with you, Billy. I mean, Buck. Oh, Mary, look at you with your own Beverly Hills cop quote. Throwing that my way. I like it, Mary. Uh, I wish your show would do a special investigative report on members of Congress who owe the IRS tax money and are behind on their payments. Mary, I like that you're coming up with ideas for the show, but I got to tell you, I don't know if that one specifically is going to turn out the masses, if you know what I mean. David, I'm not going to fall for the banana on the tailpipe. Rosewood, keep up the great work, Buck. You guys really, I got a lot of Beverly Hills cop fans in this audience. Look at that, dude. You you guys, uh, yeah, there you go. Katie writes, you are a talented analyst and talk show host. Please don't sing. 
Man. Who let the dogs out? Oh, oh. Sorry, Katie. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. I should code red myself. Uh, let's see. Pablo writes, Buck, it was funny when you said that Biden should do the opposite. An hour prior to that, I just watched the Seinfeld episode, The Opposite. Biden could run on that premise alone. He could give it a good run. Shield side. Thanks, Pablo. I, I got to tell you, if you're talking about foreign policy and you do whatever the opposite is of whatever Joe Biden wants you to do, you're going to be in real good shape. You know, you're you're going to you're going to be right a lot more than you're wrong. So, yeah, um, that's an important one. Jonathan writes, when you were at the border, did anyone ever mention the correlation between the surge in caravan numbers and the surge in the drug, a drug epidemic? I read in The Washington Times the cartels are using the caravans as a distraction. While the Border Patrol is overwhelmed doing humanitarian work, the cartels sneak through their stuff. An age-old military tactic where you offer a diversion while the real job is being done. In fact, it'd be stupid for the cartels not to do it. Jonathan, the cartels 100% are doing that. I know they're doing that. Border Patrol told me they're doing that. It happens on a regular basis. They know what's happening. There's nothing they can do about it, though. They have to process. If they get 300 people to turn themselves in at once in the border... They have to process. They have to check them for medical issues. They have to take them to the hospital if need be. They got to get them food. They can't say, oh, no, we see a truck two miles down. We got to stop and leave you guys alone here. And no, if they leave them alone, guess what? Then they can just run into the country. So that's not how it works. Um, Anyway, thank you uh, so much, team, for joining me here on this fantastic Freestyle Friday. I will be talking to you all on Tuesday. Please tell somebody about the show this week and be like, hey, listen to this guy on podcast, Buck Sexton. He's kind of fun sometimes, except when he sings. Shields high.